Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. All right, welcome back, and now we are going to finish off Chapter 43, The Legend of Hiram Abiff. If we go back to the oldest of all mythologies, that which is taught in the Vedic hymns, we shall find the fire god Agni, whose flames are described as being luminous, powerful, fearful, and not to be trusted. The element of fire, thus worshipped by the primeval Aryans as an instrument of good or of evil, was later spoken of in a personal sense by the Greeks, The Vedic hymns, referring to the continual revival of the flame as it was fed by fuel, called it the fire god Agni, also Gavista, that is, the ever-young. From this, the Greeks got their Hephaestus, the mighty workman, the immortal smith who forged the weapons of the gods, and, at the prayer of Thetis, made the perfect armor of Achilles. The Romans were indebted to their Aryan forefathers for the same idea of the power of fire, and personified it in their Vulcan a name which is evidently derived from the Sanskrit ulka, a firebrand, although a similarity of sound has led many etymologists to deduce the Roman Vulcan from the Semitic Tubalcane. Indeed, until the modern discoveries in comparative philology, this was the universal opinion of the learned. Among the Babylonians, an important god was Bilkan. He was the fire god, and the name seems to be derived from Baal, or Bel, and Cain, the god of smiths, or the master smith. George Smith, in his Chaldean account of Genesis, thinks that there is possibly some connection here with the biblical Tubal-Cain and the classical Vulcan. From the fragments of Sanchoniathan, we learn that the Phoenicians had a hero whom he calls Chrysor. He was worshipped after his death in consequence of the many inventions that he bestowed on man under the name of Diomycius, that is, the great inventor. To him was ascribed the invention of all those arts which the Greeks credited to Hephaestus and the Romans to Vulcan. Bishop Cumberland derives the name of Chrysor from the Hebrew karats, or the sharpener, a very apt name of one who taught the use of iron tools. The authorized version of Genesis, which calls Tubalcane an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron, is better rendered in the Septuagint and the Vulgate as a sharpener of every instrument in brass and iron. Tubalcane has been derived in the English lectures of Dr. Hemming and, of course, by Dr. Oliver from a generally received explanation that Cain meant worldly possessions, and the true symbolism of the name has been thus mistaken. The true derivative is from kin, which says Jesenius has an especial meaning to forge iron, whence comes cane, a spear or lance, an instrument of iron that has been forged. In the Arabic, it is kayan. This word, says Dr. Goldseyer in his work on mythology among the Hebrews, which with other synonymous names of trades occurs several times on the so-called Nabataean Sinaitic inscriptions, signifies smith, maker of agricultural implements and has preserved this meaning in the Arabic Kayan and the Aramaic Kenea. 
whilst in the later Hebrew it was lost altogether, being probably suppressed through the biblical attempt to derive the proper name Cain etymologically from Cana to Gain. Here it is that Hemming and Oliver got their false symbolism of worldly possessions. Goldzeiger attempts to identify mythologically Cain, the murderer of his brother, with the son of Lamech. Whether he be correct or not in his theory, it is at least a curious thing that Cain, which we have shown to mean a smith, should have been the first builder of a city, and that the same name should have been assigned to the first forger of metals, while the old Masonic legend makes the master smith Hiram of Tyre also the chief builder for Solomon. It will be interesting to trace the progress of the myth which has given in every age and every country this prominent position among artisans to the smith. Hephaestus, or Vulcan, kindling his forges in the Isle of Lemnos, and with his cyclopean or giant journeyman beating out and shaping and welding the red-hot iron into the forms of spears and javelins and helmets and coats of mail, was the southern development of the Aryan firegon Agni. Hephaestus, or Vulcan, says Didorus Siculus, was the first founder in iron, brass, gold, silver, and all fusible metals, and he taught the uses to which fire might be applied by artificers. Thus he was called by the ancients the god of blacksmiths. The Scandinavians, or northern descendants of the Aryan race, brought with them in their emigration from Caucasus the same reverence for fire and for the working of metals by its potent use. They did not, however, bring with them such recollections of Agni as would invent a god of fire like Hephaestus and Vulcan of the Greeks and Romans. They had, indeed, Loki, who took his name, it is said by some, from the Icelandic Logi, or flame. But he was an evil principle, and represented rather the destructive than the creative powers of fire. But the Scandinavians, mixing like all the northern nations their folklore into their mythology, invented legends of a skillful smith beneath whose mighty blows upon the yielding iron swords of marvelous keenness and strength were forged, or by whose wonderful artistic skill diadems and bracelets and jewels of surpassing beauty were constructed. Hence the myth of a wonderfully cunning artist was found everywhere. The legend of the smith became the common property of all the Scandinavian and Teutonic nations, and was of so impressive a character that it continued to exist down to medieval times, and traces of it have extended to the superstitions of the present day. May we not justly look to its influence for the prominence given by the old Masonic legendists to the master smith of King Hiram among the workmen of Solomon. Among the Scandinavians, we have the legend of Voland, whose story is recited in the Voland Darkavitha, or Lay of Voland, contained in the Edda of Samond. Voland, pronounced as if spelled Wayland, okay, so that should have been Valent, was one of three brothers, sons of an elf king, that is to say, of a supernatural race. The three brothers emigrated to Ulfdal, where they married three Valkyries, or choosers of the slain, maidens of celestial origin, the attendants of Odin, and who were similar to those of the Greek Parse or Fates. After seven years, the three wives fled away to pursue their allotted duty of visiting battlefields. Two of the brothers went in search of their wandering wives, but Valand remained in Ulfdal. He was a skillful workman at the forge, and occupied his time in making works in gold and steel, while patiently awaiting the promised return of his beloved wife. Nidath, the king of the country, having heard of the wonderful skill of Valand as a forger of metals, visited his home during his absence, and secretly got possession of some of the jewels which he had made, and of the beautiful sword which the smith had made for himself. 
Valand, on his return, was seized by the warriors of Nidath and conducted to the castle. There the queen, terrified at his fierce looks, ordered him to be hang- hamstrung, the muscle back of the ankle to be cut through. Thus crippled and without the power of escape or resistance, he was confined to a small island near the royal residence and compelled to make jewels for the queen and her daughter and weapons of war for the king. We need not tell all the adventures of the smith while confined in his island prison. It is sufficient to say that, having made a pair of wings by which he was enabled to fly, and here we are reminded of the Greek fable of Daedalus, he made his escape, having by a trick first dishonored the princess and slain her two brothers. This legend of a curious and cunning workman at the forge was so popular in Scandinavia that it spread into other countries where the legend of the smith presents itself under various forms. In the Icelandic legend, Valand is described as a great artist in the working of iron, gold, and silver. It does not, however, connect him with heavenly heavenly beings, but credits to him great skill in his art, in which he is assisted by the power of magic. The Germans had the same legend at a very early period. In the German legend, the artificer is called Valand, and he is represented as the son of a giant named Wade. He acquires the art of a smith from Minner, a skillful workman, and is perfected by the dwarves in all his operations at the forge as an armorer and goldsmith. He goes of his own accord to the king, who is here called Nidung, where he finds another skillful smith named Amylus, with whom he fights in battle, and kills him with his sword Mimung. For this offense, he is crippled by the king, and then the rest of the story proceeds very much like that of the Scandinavian legend. Among the Anglo-Saxons, the legend is found not varying much from the original type. The story where the hero receives the name of Valand is contained in an ancient poem, of which fragments unfortunately only remain. The legend had become so familiar to the people that in the metrical romance of Beowulf, the coat of mail of the hero is described as the work of Valand and King Alfred in his translation of The Consolation of Philosophy by Bothius, where the author refers to the bones of the consul Fabricius in the passage, Ube sunt osa Fabricie, where now are the bones of Fabricius? Thus changes over the question, where now are the bones of the wise Valand, the goldsmith that was so formerly famed? Geoffrey of Monmouth, afterward in a Latin poem, speaks of the gold and jewels and cups that had been made by Valand, which name he Latinesis as Guelandis. In the old French chronicles, we repeatedly meet the legend of the skillful smith, though, as might be expected, the name undergoes many changes. Thus, in a poem of the 6th century, entitled Gautier à la Mainforte, or Walter of the Strong Hand, it is said that in a combat of Walter de Varkastein, he was protected from the lance of Randolph by a breastplate or cuirass made by Weiland, Valand. Another chronicle of the 12th century tells us that a Count of Anguillim, in a battle with the Normans, cut the cuirass and the body of the Norman king in two at a single stroke, with his sword Durissima, which had been made by the smith Valander. A chronicle of the same period, written by the monk John of Marmontier, describes the fine equipment of Geoffrey Plantagenet, Duke of Normandy, under which, among which, says the author, was a sword taken from the royal treasury and long since renowned. Galanus, the most skillful of armorers, had employed much labor and care in making it. Galans, for Valans, the G being substituted for the letter W, a letter unknown in the French alphabet, is the name bestowed in general on this skillful smith. 
The romances of the trouvères and troubadours of northern and southern France in the 12th and 13th centuries have many references to swords of wondrous keenness and strength that were forged by him for the knights and nobles. Whether the name was given as Voland, Valand, Wayland, or Wieland, or Galans, it found its common origin in the Icelandic Volander, which signifies a smith. It is a class or general term from which the mythical name has been taken. So the Greeks called the skillful workman, the smith of their folklore, Daedalus, because there is a verb in their language, Daedalo, which means to do skillful or ornamental work. Here it may be well to notice the curious fact that along with those legends of a skillful smith, there ran in the Middle Ages others of which King Solomon was the subject. In many of these old romances and metrical tales, a skill is credited to King Solomon which makes him the rival of any of the workmen. Indeed, the artistic fame of Solomon was a proverb at the very time when the legends of the smith were the most common. In the poems of those days, we meet with repeated uses of the expression Louvre Salomon, or the work of Solomon, to indicate any production or great of great artistic beauty. So fully had the Scandinavian sagas, the German chronicles, and the French romances spoken of this mythical smith that the idea became familiar to the common people and was handed down in the popular superstitions and the folklore to a comparatively modern period. Two of these, one from Germany and one from England, will serve us as examples and show the general identity of the legends and the probability of their common origin. Herman Harries, in his Tales and Legends of Lower Saxony, tells the story of a smith who dwelt in the village of Hagen on the side of a mountain about two miles from Osnabrück. He was celebrated for his skill in forging metals, but being discontented with his lot, and murmuring against God, he was supernaturally carried into a cave or cleft of a mountain where he was condemned to be a metal king and resting by day to labor at night at the forge for the benefit of men until the mine in the mountain should cease to furnish him with stock for that purpose. In the coolness of the mine, says the legend, his good disposition returned and he labored with great industry, extracting ore from its veins and at first forging household and agricultural implements. Afterwards, he confined himself to the shoeing of horses for the neighboring farmers. In front of the cavern was a stake fixed in the ground, to which the countryman fastened the horse which he wished to have shod, and on a stone nearby he laid the necessary fee. He then retired. On returning in due time, he would find the task completed, but the smith, or as he was called the hiller, that is, the hider, would never permit himself to be seen. Similar to this story is the English legend which tells us that in a vale of Berkshire at the foot of White Horse Hill, from the stones which lay scattered around evidently the site of a druidic monument, formerly dwelt a person named Vueland Smith. It is easily understood that here the handicraft title has been tied up with the anglicized or English name, and that is the same as the medieval Vueland the Smith. No one ever saw him, for the huge stones afforded him a hiding place. He, too, was a hiller, for the word in the preceding legend does not mean the man of the hill, but is from the German hullen to cover or conceal, and denotes the man who conceals himself. In this studious concealment of their persons by both of these smiths, we detect the common origin of the two legends. When his services were required to shoe a horse, the animal was left among the stones and a piece of money placed on them, one of them. The owner then retired, and after some time had elapsed, he returned when he found that the horse was shod and the money disappeared. 
The English reader ought to be familiar with this story from the use made of it by Brother Sir Walter Scott in his novel Kenilworth. It is very evident from all that has been here said that the smith, as the maker of weapons for the battlefield and jewels for the boudoir, as well as implements of agriculture and household use, was the most important personage in the earliest times, esteemed as a god by the ancients, and invested by the moderns with more than human qualities. It is equally evident that this respect for the smith as an artificer was common in the Middle Ages. But in the very latest legends, by a customary process of decay in all traditions, when the stream becomes muddy as it proceeds onward, he descended in character from a skilled forger of splendid swords, his earliest occupation, to be a shoer of horses, which was his last. We must bear in mind, also, that in the Middle Ages the respect for the smith as a curious and cunning workman began by the introduction of a new element brought by the Crusaders and pilgrims from the East to be shared with King Solomon, who was supposed to be invested with equal skill. It is not therefore strange that the idea should have been put into the rituals of the various secret societies of the Middle Ages and adopted by the Freemasons, at first by the operative branch and afterward in a more enlarged form by the speculative Freemasons. In all of the old manuscript constitutions of the operative Freemasons, we find the legend of the craft, and with it, except in one instance, and at, at the earliest, a reference to Tubalcane as the one who found, that is invented, the smith craft of gold and silver, iron and copper and steel. Nothing but the universal circulation of the medieval legend of the smith, Valand or Wayland, can account for this reference to the father of smith craft in a legend which should have been credited to stonecraft. There is no connection between the forge and the trowel which authorized on any other ground the honor paid by stonemasons to a forger of metals, an honor so marked that in time the very name of Tubalcane came to be adopted as a significant and important word in the Masonic ritual, and the highest place in the traditional labors of the temple was given to a worker in gold and brass and iron. Afterward, when the operative art was superseded by the speculative science, the latter added to the simple legend of the craft the more complex legend of the temple. In this latter legend, the name of Hiram, whom the king of Tyre had sent with all honor to the king of Israel to give him aid in the construction of the temple, is first introduced under his Bible name and title. But this is not the first time that this personage is made known to the fraternity. In the older legends, he is mentioned always with a different name, but always also as King Solomon's master mason. In the beginning of the 18th century, when what has been called the revival took place, there was a continuation of the general idea that he was the chief mason at the temple. But the true name of Hiram Abiff is, as we have already said, then first found in a written or printed record. Anderson speaks of his architectural abilities in exaggerated terms. He calls him in one place the most accomplished mason on earth, and in another the prince of architects. This character has adhered to him in all the later times, and the unwritten legend of this present day represents him as the chief builder of the temple, the operative grandmaster, and the skillful architect, by whose skillful designs on his trestle board the craft were guided by their labors, and the edifice was constructed. And now it will be profitable in the investigation of historic truth to compare these qualities credited to Hiram Abiff by the older and more recent legendists with the biblical accounts of the same person which have already been cited. 
In the original Hebrew text of the passage in the book of the Chronicles, the words which refer to the craftsmanship or trade of Hiram Abiff are Korish Nekoshet, literally a worker in brass. The Vulgate, which was the popular version in those days and from which the old legendists must have taken their knowledge of Bible history, thus translates the letter of King Hiram to King Solomon. Therefore I have sent to thee a wise and most skillful man, Hiram the workman or smith, my father. Hiram, Fabrum, Patrium, Meum. Indeed, in the close of the verse in the authorized version, he is described as being cunning to work all works in brass. And hence, Dr. Adam Clark, in his commentaries, calls him a very intelligent coppersmith. The position of the old legendists and the modern Masonic writers in supposing him to have also been a stonemason or an architect has arisen from the translation in the authorized version of the passage in Chronicles, where he is said to have been skillful to work in gold and in silver, in brass and iron, in stone and in timber. The words in the original are Baabinim Vibogenitism in stones and in woods, that is, in precious stones and in woods of various kinds. That is to say, besides being a coppersmith, he was a lapidary and a carver and gilder. The words in the original Hebrew are in the plural, and therefore the translation in wood and in timber is not correct. Jesenius says, and then there is no better authority for Hebraism, that the word eben is used by way of excellence to denote a precious stone, and its plural, abanim, means therefore precious stones. In the same way, genets, which is the singular signifies a tree, in the plural denotes materials of wood for any purpose. The work that was done by Hiram Abiff in the temple is fully recounted in the first book of Kings, the seventh chapter, from the 15th to the 40th verse, and is briefly retold in verses 41 to 50. It is also given in the third and fourth chapters of Second Chronicles, and in both books, care is taken to say that when the work was done, the task of Hiram Abiff was completed. In the first book of Kings 7.40, it is said, So Hiram made an end of doing all the work that he made King Solomon for the house of the Lord. In the second book of Chronicles 4.2, the statement is repeated thus, And Hiram finished the work that he was to make for King Solomon for the house of God. The same authority leaves us no doubt as to what that work was to which the skeleton of Hiram Abiff had been devoted. It was, as the book of Chronicles, the two pillars, and the pommels and the chapters which were on top of the pillars, and four hundred pomegranates on the two wreaths, two rows of pomegranates on each wreath, to cover the two pommels of the chapters which were upon the pillars. He made also bases, and lavers made he upon the bases, one sea and twelve oxen under it. The pots also, and the shovels, and the flesh hooks, and all their instruments, did Huram his father, Hiram Abiff, make to King Solomon for the house of the Lord of bright brass. Enough has been said to show that the labors as mainly reported to us of Hiram Abiff in the temple were those of a worker in brass and in precious stones, in carving and in gilding, and not those of a stonemason. He was, to the writers of the Bible accounts, more the decorator than the builder of the temple. He owes the position which he holds in the legends and in the ritual of Freemasonry, not so much to any connection which he had with the art of architecture, but, like Tubal-Cain, to his skill in bringing the power of fire under his control and applying it to the forging of metals. 
The high honor paid to him is the result of the influence of the legend of the smith, so universally spread in the Middle Ages, which recounted the wondrous deeds of Voland or Wayland or Valand. The smith was, in the medieval traditions, in the sagas of the north and in the romances of the south of Europe, the maker of swords and coats of mail. In the legends of Freemasonry, he was changed into the maker of holy vessels and sacred implements. But the idea that of all handicrafts, smithcraft was the greatest, was retained by the Freemasons when they elevated the skillful smith of Tyre, the cunning worker in brass, to the highest place as a builder in their temple legend. The spirit of critical image-breaking, which strips the outer rind or husk from the historic germ of all myths and legends, has been doing much to clear the history of Freemasonry of all fables and guesses. This attempt to give to Hiram Abiff his true position and to define his real profession is in the spirit of that acid test of truth. But the doctrine here advanced is not intended to affect in the slightest degree the part assigned to Hiram Abiff in the symbolism of the third degree. Whatever may have been his profession, he must have stood high in the confidence of the two kings, of him who sent him and him who received him, as a master workman, and he might well be supposed to be entitled in an allegory to the exalted rank bestowed upon him in the legend of the craft and in the modern ritual. Allegories are permitted to branch at will from the facts of history and the teachings of science. Trees may be made to speak, as they do in the most ancient fable that exists, and it is no trespass upon their character that a worker in brass may be changed into a builder in stone to suit a symbolic purpose. Hence this celebrated artist, as he is fairly called, whether smith or mason, or whether as father and son there are two, the one more the architect and the other more the smith, is still the representative, in the symbolism of Freemasonry, of the abstract idea of man laboring in the temple of life, and the symbolic lesson of his tried faithfulness and his unhappy fate is still the same. When we view the whole legend as a myth intended to give expression to a symbolic idea, we may be content to call him an architect, the first of Freemasons and the chief builder of the temple. But as students of history, we can know nothing of him and admit nothing concerning him that is not supported by authentic and undisputed authority. While many may smile at the old idea that Freemasonry had a guild or association in the days of Solomon, it is only fair to say that in Bible terms, trade and craft societies were not rare. Their places of business were even set apart and distinct. Briefly, then, note the tannery by the sea in Acts 10.32, the Fuller's Field of Isaiah 7.3, the Baker's Street of Jeremiah 37.21, etc. The Valley of Craftsmen mentioned in Nehemiah 11.35 deserve a special note. Moreover, as to societies, see the Son of the Apothecaries in Nehemiah 3.8 and Son of the Goldsmiths of Nehemiah 3.31, also Sons of the Porters and Sons of the Prophets in Ezra 2.42, and the Linen Weavers and Potters of 1 Chronicles 4.21, and the Guild of Silversmiths at Ephesus, where Demetrius called together the workmen of like occupation, and said, Sirs, ye know by that this craft we have our wealth. Acts 19.24-27 Sons of suggest that trades were handed down in families from father to son, and this also intimates an old origin for the son, the Lewis, being in Freemasonry given special favor in an initiation earlier in age than other candidates. And that concludes chapter 43. So we'll pick it up next week with chapter 44, the Leland Manuscript.
Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.